Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Then she asked me what he said. A piece of mind. That's what the Asian said. I needed a divine intervention with his religion. I was surprised. He believed in Buddha. He believed in God. Ask him what are we doing? He said, taking my time. Meditation is a must. It don't hurt if you try. See, you're thinking too much because you're too full of yourself. Worried about your career. Ever think of your health? Yeah, we think of our health. Prime Endurance Podcast. Let's do some Q&A. Thank you, Kendrick. Thanks for the concert last week, too, in Canada. Incredible. And these questions are really incredible, too. They're nice. They're concise, very thoughtful, very interesting. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So let's get right into it. A lot of them are relating to that math heart rate, that sticky question about what exactly is it all about, and also some uh, pretty interesting ones that um, might uh, give you some food for thought and some reflectiveness. That's what the goal of these Q&A sessions are. Um, the first one comes from Carl, who's been on the paleo diet for almost a year. I've been building my base, keeping my heart rate just under my max of 138. Do you guys recommend an app that has a good heart rate alarm? I only want it to beep when it's over and quiet when it's not. I used to use the Polar F1 uh, inexpensive Polar watch with good technology. Polar's long been the leader in heart rates. And it's really cheap. You can get one on eBay for like 30 bucks. I think new for 50 or 60 and all it does is give you uh, the time of your workout, heart rate with a beeper alarm, and no frills, no fooling around trying to learn all these new technologies and functions of the watch. It stresses me out when the watch is too cool. Okay, so that's my recommendation. Lisa, 48, I've been following the math for several months and seeing limited results. My VO2 test on a treadmill showed that my aerobic threshold is five beats higher than 180 minus your age. Should I use 180 minus age or can I bump up five? I'm a 48-year-old female and my VO2 max tested superior for my age. So um, five beats, I'm not going to argue too much about anything. I don't even know uh, how they're determining aerobic threshold. We've talked about this in detail in the book, uh, Primal Endurance, and the commonly used calculation that they call ventilatory threshold. And I'll just put aside a commercial here to tell you that it does bug me when we throw in all these technology terms and we're not really sure what they're talking about. That's why I like maximum aerobic heart rate. That's the point where maximum fat oxidation occurs, maximum aerobic benefits occur with a minimal amount of anaerobic stimulation. It's so simple. Phil Maffetone's been talking about this for 30 or 40 years. Um, And then we're going into these laboratories and getting these values and wondering what they mean. Uh, So... Geez, 180 minus age, you can't get any simpler than that. Um, There are some adjustment factors that we don't talk about too much on the show. They're presented in the book. Of course, Maffetone's book's also talking about where the 180 minus age is a base calculation for most people. But you do have some adjustment factors depending on your particulars. Um, Mostly they're subtractions. So you're asked to subtract 10 beats from your maximum aerobic heart rate if you have recently 
recovered from a surgery, are taking any kind of prescription medication, have struggled with injuries, illness, burnout, or medical conditions in recent times. So that's a big whopper for you. If you think math is too slow, how about taking 10 more beats down? You're, you're to subtract five beats if you've had um, any recent setbacks, illness, injury. And then some people are encouraged to add five beats if they've been very successful with their training, no setbacks, no illness, constant progression with their fitness in recent times. Um, some old folks are arguing to add five beats because when you start to get 60 years old and you're still fit and you're still training and you're uh, whopping off that much uh, from 180 minus age, you're getting down pretty low. And so there's some buy-in there. And in this case, I would say um, if you want to add five beats and, and see how you feel, uh, you know, you can, but I don't know if it's the validity of your test being more accurate than 180 minus age. I don't know if I'd, I'd go there because I don't even know how they determined aerobic threshold. And in my case, with that um, ventilatory threshold being defined as 75 to 77% of your maximum heart rate, I know my maximum heart rate from sprint workouts is around 190 beats per minute, maybe higher, but I've seen 190 on my watch. And then if I take 75% of that, I come out at 142 beats per minute. And I wrote the sad sob story in the book about how when returning to uh, aerobic training, returning to running, uh, putting in some good number of hours at 142 or below, I basically burned myself out because that's well above my maximum aerobic heart rate by the 180 minus age calculation, which would put me at 130 since I'm 50 year old. Now I'm 52, but I still use 130. So um, that's a huge difference, 12 beats from 130 to 142. And when I was training routinely at 142, it was too much for me. I crashed and burned. I burned up an organ, had an emergency appendectomy that I attribute to this overly stressful training pattern from trying to squeeze out a few more beats honoring the scientifically popular ventilatory threshold and calculating off. I didn't even calculate off 77% of max. I calculated off 75 to be on the conservative side, and I still came up with 142. So uh, that experience and in deep consultation with Mark and others uh, led us to aggressively promote the 180 minus H as the best calculation of maximum aerobic heart rate. And adding five beats... Uh, few and far between for those people that really can benefit from that. And again, I'll remind you that uh, during my peak as a professional triathlete, I was routinely training at 15, 20, 30, or 40 beats below my maximum aerobic heart rate to great benefit. I would be biking at 100, 110 beats a minute with my maximum aerobic being at 155 and putting in those good hours on the bike and building my muscles and my nervous system, firing those legs and pedaling smoothly and becoming efficient at climbing hills, even at 120 heartbeat per minute. And I was building such a strong reserve. So when I did do those high intensity efforts, uh, whatever it was, if it was intervals or a time trial in a race, um, I had a great foundation because I had not exhausted myself and fried my muscles in training from constantly pushing up at maximum aerobic heart rate. In other words, I was fit enough as a runner and a cyclist where I had no business pegging maximum aerobic heart rate every single day because the training would have been too stressful. My maximum aerobic pace for running was six minutes per mile. That's moving along pretty good. That's pounding the legs pretty good. So if I did that day after day after day in the name of, well, I'm still aerobic, it wouldn't have felt right to my body and I would have dug into overtraining patterns. Most people uh, have 
less effort is required to get up to that maximum aerobic heart rate. So you can uh, hover up there more so than uh, a fitter or a younger athlete. For example, today when I'm running, I'm most frequently pretty close to my maximum aerobic heart rate and honestly trying to keep it below that 130. So I'm in that 125 to 130 routinely because it's pretty bloody slow and I don't need to go any slower. Uh, I'm not getting tired from running nine-minute pace per mile. So my max aerobic pace has gone from six minutes as a professional athlete uh, to nine minutes per mile now as an old guy trying to keep fit, and I adjust accordingly. So in Lisa's case, 48 years old, I officially on the podcast would say, forget it, don't add five, keep training at 180 minus your age and get faster at that pace before you ask to add more beats. Uh, But again, five beats is not a big deal. If someone's asking me, can I raise it up 15 beats because some laboratory said my aerobic threshold was this number, I'd say absolutely not. And you'll know it because you'll dig yourself into overtraining fatigue patterns. Mary Ann, the next question. I just started trying heart rate training. I'm far from fast, but after a few weeks, I'm slower than when I started. Is this normal? Uh, After a few months, I'm going to say it's not normal. After a few weeks, there's all kinds of measurement errors, variables. Maybe it's getting hotter from the time that you started to the time that you wrote the letter. So I certainly wouldn't worry about a little bit of... uh, a slowing in whatever your two measurements are. But we're going to look at a big picture view and we're going to think down the line over the months and months of devoted adherence to training at maximum aerobic heart rate or below that you will get faster and faster at the same pace. And you do want to measure this once in a while, all of us, to stay, make sure that we're staying on track and especially make sure that we are not uh, digging ourselves into overtraining spirals where our maximum aerobic function pace is slowing at repeated tests. So if you're slower than normal, I'm going to ask you first to consider whether other life stress factors are in play here. So if you've just got off uh, a busy week of uh, three airplane trips for work, and then you're going and doing your aerobic test on a Saturday morning, you're going to be slower than normal because your heart rate's going to be elevated because you're under the influence of stress hormones, et cetera, et cetera. Same with arguments in the workplace or at home or things that are stressing you out in general. They're going to affect your performance. So let's look at big picture view and make sure that you're progressing steadily as represented by a faster pace at your maximum aerobic function test. Mike asks... Both you and Dr. Maffetone have suggested that maximum duration for a training run should be roughly two and a half hours. I don't know that I ever said that. Um, Maybe Maffetone said it in passing. I don't know if you have to um, live and die by that, but it's probably um, something that has some good general validity, but not if you're training for a 100-mile ultra. I think you should probably go out longer than two and a half hours. Okay, so I'm not going to put too much stock in that, whether it was said in passing or not. Uh, So back to Mike's question. Now, running is much more taxing than biking. Is there a comparable maximum duration training ride? Uh, So I'll answer the question that if you're saying a two and a half hour run is your max, uh, max duration, yes, indeed, the correlating uh, bike duration will be quite a bit longer, unless you're climbing in the mountains for the entire time or going up the continental divide and you're climbing for two and a half hours, that's going to be around the same as running in terms of impact on the body, stress impact of the workout. But, uh, you know, I'm going to throw out something like maybe a four hour bike ride is comparable to a two and a half hour training run in terms of the 
uh, stress impact on the body. Now, if you're riding indoors on a stationary, uh, you're probably getting a more um, relevant or more uh, return on investment value workout than if you're outdoors, because outdoors you're constantly going to be subject to um, coasting, uh, signal lights, things that cause you to slow down, where if you're indoor and you're pedaling straight for two and a half hours, now you're getting more of a one-to-one ratio with a, a run, except for the, uh, the gravity impact. So again, the heart rate's the constant variable. That's why we uh, use that so much. So if you're running at 130 heartbeats per minute, and then you're cycling at 130 heartbeats per minute, uh, by many measures, that's an equivalent uh, stress impact on the body, except for the recovery time and the breakdown uh, from the pounding of running. And that's why uh, the cyclist can get up and ride for hours and hours every day. Let's say a Tour de France cyclist can ride for five to six to seven hours every day, where even the greatest long-distance runner is coming nowhere near that. So that's kind of what Mike's question is. What's that equivalent ratio? Um, don't Don't put a gun to my head and hold me to that when I said two and a half hour run equals four hour ride, that's totally OMA. You know what that stands for? Out my ass. But anyway, sounds good. Sounds like a good answer. Number two, Mike says, I would think that building the aerobic base for running will help your cycling base and vice versa. If cycling's easier on the body than running and our goal during base building is to develop a solid aerobic base, would it make more sense to spend time cycling? i.e. if I have an hour available for training, does my aerobic system develop the same from an hour of cycling and an hour of running? Or, since running's more taxing, will the aerobic system develop better if I spent that hour running? Great question. See, I told you the questions were awesome today. Um, So, first, we have to answer this on different levels. I answered part of it already, where if you're going 130 heartbeats per minute for an hour, you're getting a training effect regardless of what you're doing, and you're getting a very similar training effect. You're burning energy and training your cardiovascular system to operate at 130 heartbeats a minute. Now, when you have fitness goals and competitive goals, there's nothing like specificity of training. There is no substitute for specificity of training. You can get Tour de France cyclists, some of the greatest endurance athletes in the world, and ask them to run a 10K and they're going to crap out at 42-minute pace. They just don't have any running fitness uh, comparable to even a recreational runner who runs and runs and runs. And the pounding and all those strains, muscles that are being recruited, uh, even if you're the fittest cyclist around, oh boy, you're going to get those uh, hamstrings and hip flexors cramping up even if you try to go out and run 10K. So the crossover is relevant. The cross-training effect that we've talked about and heard about Uh, so much over the years is relevant, but you have to have that specificity also. Same with imagining a swimmer who's a champion endurance swimmer that does the master's workouts every day, but if you ask them to put on shoes and go run down the street, they're going to have real trouble, not only from the musculoskeletal aspects, but also from the cardio aspect, because it's so difficult to get one foot in front of the other and run if you don't train in running. So triathletes, if you're listening, you have to train in every sport. You have to become competent in each sport. And the crossover, the cross-training effect is there. It's kind of a a starting point. It's going to help you become more competent as a swimmer if you're good at running and biking, but there's no substitute for doing the exact thing that you want to become competent in. Uh, So if you have an hour available to train, um, as far as base building, yeah, whatever you do at whatever heart rate will have a similar effect but a completely different effect when it comes to um, what you're trying to get good at. Ward, next question. 
Would you please comment on the efficacy of the 100-up drill of Walter George as made popular by Christopher McDougall? Is this a good way to both build foot-slash-leg strength for running and to develop good running form? If you haven't heard of Walter George, you better get your Google going right now and uh, type this guy up. He's one of the greatest runners in the history of the world. In the 1880s up to, I think it was 1880s, somewhere around that time frame, he was running uh, absolute smash world records that are very, very respectable even today with rudimentary training methods and not much competition. I believe his PR in the mile was 412. So he would be like a state championship level high school competitor even today. And this is an old time guy with the funny clothes on and his training because he worked in a print shop. He'd do these things called uh, step ups or 100 up, I guess is uh, the correct term if Ward's right. Uh, But he would just run in place basically. Uh, So he would get his foot driving up and high in the air, high knee drive having that toe clear opposite knee and all the running form drills that I speak about in detail on the Primal Endurance Mastery course in the series of videos about running technique instruction. And that's one of my favorite parts of the course is the running technique instruction because we get really deep into it. The videos are great. They're very informative. They'll be memorable and you'll never be a lazy foot runner again once you skip right to those videos when you enroll in the Primal Endurance Mastery course. How about that for a commercial in the middle of answering a question? Wow, how smooth. But anyway, what Walter George did was because he didn't have the even the luxury of running outside down the road, he did these hundred up drills and he claimed that it got him very fit to perform world record uh, performances in the 1880s. Yeah, so um, check out Walter George. The 100-up drill is a great way to build foot and leg strength and also to develop good running form because you want to basically be balanced over your center of gravity when you're running, not leaning forward or not hitting the brakes and leaning backward. So you're balanced right over your feet and you want your feet to land right underneath you, not overstriding and stretching your foot out nor dragging your foot back too far and losing that balanced center of gravity. So if you imagine running in place, of course your center of gravity is balanced over where your feet are landing, and all you have to do to become a good runner is take, let's say, you know, 20 strides in place, and then just form this tiny notion that it's time to move forward, just this tiny little thought about moving forward, and your body will move forward with perfect running form. But when we try to reach forward with our legs or lunge toward the finish line, uh, that kind of running form, that throws us all off and disturbs our center of gravity. Love the question about Walter George, man. Okay, Brian, regarding the keto diet, can you share what a day or two in the life of Brad's keto eating looks like? So you listeners know that I've been deeply immersed into this ketogenic eating uh, experiment and study Uh, for this whole year of 2017, Mark and I basically dropped everything at the beginning of the year to do a deep dive, a deep immersion into the research and to the practical application of the ketogenic eating strategy, as has our audio engineer who gracefully masters all these recordings and publishes them and also does all our videos, Brian McAndrew up in Portland, Oregon, full-on keto dude, and also doing uh, powerlifting and extreme explosive strength training workouts and adhering to ketogenic diet. So uh, someone like me, who's mostly doing endurance right now, speed golf and jogging, all the way over to the other end of the spectrum of lifting the heavy weights, all thriving on the keto diet. Um, I 
spoke about on other shows how I had a sustained period, about 140 days, I identify, where I was in this ketogenic experiment and taking the trouble to uh, track carb intake and also do the blood values to maintain a state of nutritional ketosis for 140 days. And then I identified, this was from October to April, and then I identified a bit of loosening up where I just didn't uh, pay strong attention to it anymore. I might have let things leak in like uh, corn tortillas when I'm eating my street tacos rather than eliminating every form of carbs that I could. And I didn't really notice anything uh, better or worse, but what I did notice was Uh, from doing this period of nutritional ketosis, my metabolic fitness was enhanced, whereby I can handle a carbohydrate binge better than I could in previous life. So I just went on vacation last week, was eating a lot of stuff uh, up in uh, Seattle and Canada that might have been much higher in carbs than normal eating patterns and enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, no problems, except when I kind of overdid it a couple times when these homemade key lime pies are pressed in front of me. Uh, Yeah, you feel that sugar crash later and you realize why and how beautiful it's been to transition over to primal style eating and living. It just doesn't feel good to have that little spark of energy, let's say late at night after eating dessert, and then feel like total crap 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later. So all fun learning experience and education. Uh, But today, my main takeaway from the keto experience and then recalibrating back to a more primal aligned eating pattern where I'm not super strict extreme keto is that I think my favorite practice to recommend is that I try to fast every day until I am experiencing true sensations of hunger. And I usually make it no problem without even thinking until 12 noon. Right now I'm recording this show. It's 1.36 p.m. I just noticed on my computer all I've had is uh, some water today and I feel great. And this is uh, a sign of good metabolic conditioning because even in my uh, past nine years of eating a primal aligned diet, no grains, no sugar, uh, I would still have more trouble making it this far uh, than I do now having gone through that uh, long stint of strict ketogenic eating and now getting into this routine of fasting almost every day as I can to build that metabolic fitness and turbocharge fat burning. Obviously, if I'm not eating and I'm still being active and productive and using my brain and using my mouth, I'm burning stored energy in the form of fat and ketones. So my daily routine is delaying that first ingestion of calories for as long as I can. And notice that I said first ingestion of calories rather than being in the same category as the people who enjoy their high-fat coffee or things of that nature. Um, I was also inspired by a podcast from Dr. Rhonda Patrick, her guest, Dr. Sachin Panda from uh, UC San Diego, and he's doing a lot of research about our circadian digestive clock. In other words, our bodies are best operating on a maximum 12-hour window for processing any form of calories or xenobiotic substances. That's anything that you have to process in the digestive system. So that includes a coffee, even with no calories. That includes a tea. That includes a vitamin pill. And he says, try to stay inside this 12-hour window rather than leak out of it. Uh, So since I heard that podcast a couple months ago, I've paid much more attention to this because I'm kind of guy who might like to nibble on a bite or two or three of dark chocolate at 9.30 at night, a couple hours after I finish my dinner. And then I'll wake up first thing in the morning and have um, some 
some brewed tea or something that's uh, causing my digestive system to kick on and for the clock to start. And guess what? That was only nine or 10 hours instead of 12. So now I try to do just water. Maybe I'll have some tea as I'm getting into the later morning hours or something that I'll, I'll put a bit of kombucha, like a five to one ratio of water to kombucha in my drink or squeeze a fresh lime or lemon in there and get that digestive clock starting. Not too concerned about that, but I do like the practice of extending my fast every single day until true sensations of hunger arise. But this is not uh, this is not to try at home until you've become fully fat and keto adapted. So that's the first answer: is that build up the metabolic flexibility. In my case, going back to my very beginning in the primal style eating pattern, two thousand eight, uh, when I started working with Mark on the book Primal Blueprint and, and buying into everything uh, cold turkey. I basically exchanged my huge morning breakfast cereal bowl that I'd eaten for many years and decades to get me going because I was a high-calorie burner. Remember, I was a competing athlete and training hard and doing things in my life that required energy as soon as I woke up. And so I traded that in, that bowl of granola and oatmeal and yogurt and fruit and soy milk and sliced bananas, I traded that in for a very large omelet every single day that represented my beginning energy source for the day. It didn't spike insulin, didn't, wasn't uh, hardly any carbs in there, but it was still this huge meal every single day. And that allowed me to become fat adapted to the extent that a year or two down the line, I realized that I wasn't even hungry for the omelet because I was so good at burning internal energy sources. So I'm a big fan of fasting when you become fat adapted, when you no longer need the omelet, but otherwise it can get you tired and cranky or stimulate a stress response because you're making your own glucose internally because you're still somewhat carbohydrate dependent. You haven't done the hard work or spent enough time in a fat adapted state and that's no good either and that'll cause you to crash and burn and have intense sugar cravings when you do start eating or bad stuff like that. So back to Brian's question, what's my first meal like when I start eating? Sometimes it's a breakfast type meal, but sometimes I go straight into the salad for lunch. Uh, sometimes I'll have like uh, soft-boiled eggs with sun-dried tomatoes and walnuts, and it's just mushed into a nice bowl with Primal Kitchen mayo, and that's a wonderful first meal of the day. Sometimes it's the big-ass salad that Mark Sisson made famous on YouTube and is the centerpiece of the recommended uh, Primal-style eating patterns. And then sometimes it's... Um, you know, four squares of dark chocolate uh, smeared with coconut butter or almond butter or macadamia nut butter, and it's sort of like a dessert, but that's my first meal of the day and total primal approved. And then as we go through uh, into the, um, let's say, the dinner period, uh, all kinds of great choices abound, whether you're dining out or home, but, you know, meat and vegetables is another centerpiece recommendation for primal-style eating, and I do enjoy my I've now habituated up to 90% dark chocolate as kind of my treat or my snack. Um, Lint makes a great uh, product, nice, clean, manufactured from Switzerland. You can find that on the internet, L-I-N-D-T, 90% dark chocolate. And they make them in all kinds of different percentages. So if you're trying to, um, gosh, I should get them to advertise on the podcast, huh? If you're trying to habituate to a higher percentage of dark chocolate. Remember, the higher cacao percentage as listed on the box, that means the less sugar and the more fat. And so that's what we want is a high percentage dark chocolate that you're consuming. And they make them uh, on the Lint brand. You can find them at 70, 72, 80, 85, up to 90. They even make a 99 that tastes pretty good. 
but you got you to put the, uh, the time in to habituate your taste buds away from that super sweet milk chocolate that now I can't even stand. And I used to love chocolate, but if you give me a bite of something that's too sweet, uh, it has no pleasurable impact anymore because I've reprogrammed my taste buds. Okay, uh, more from Brian. Are there any rough guidelines for the amount of aerobic training hours in a week to complete a given event in a reasonable time? For example, if there's a race where a three-hour finish would be reasonable, then would five hours a week of training support that? I realize there's a lot of variables here, but I'd love to know a sweet spot to target for a given event. Yeah, there's really no sweet spot. If you're training aerobically in a sensible, balanced manner, um, you know, the more the better in many ways. And that's why the guys who are winning the race, if you go up to them after the race and say, hey, dude, how many hours a week do you train? They're going to give you a big number because they just won the race. And there's no escaping that. There's no shortcutting or hacking the process of becoming a champion endurance athlete or the winner of whatever age group. They got to put the time in, put the work in. But if you do it poorly, you'll be in the back of the pack despite a lot of hours of weekly training commitment. But up in the front of the pack, yeah, more conditioning, more aerobic conditioning. You get a good return on investment uh, when you can do a lot of over-distance workouts. So if you're going for a three-hour competitive event, maybe that's a fast marathon or some kind of uh, trail run, or if you're a cyclist or a triathlete, might be an Olympic distance race. If you can do workouts that last longer than the duration of your event, of course that's going to benefit you in the event. Uh, like the, what's the war quote from Patton or Sun Tzu or somebody said, you know, uh, fight, uh, uh, p- practice hard and battle easy, something like that, right? So if the workouts are um, challenging enough that the race feels like a good groove and you can perform at your uh, at your best speed because you've done that over distance conditioning, that's a big winner. Um, so the more the better within the parameters that you're training properly, balancing stress and, stress and rest. Uh, but to shortcut that answer a little bit or to summarize, um, look, you want to approximate the challenge of your competitive event in training in some way or another. So if you're running a 26.2 mile paved marathon, It's not going to work that well to go and do 26-mile practice runs because it's too extreme of a challenge. Even for the elites are not out there doing that, uh, surprisingly so. They might curtail their long runs at 22 miles, or they might go for 30 miles, but they're going at a slower pace. So you do the best you can to approximate the challenge of race day. A lot of triathletes enjoy doing things like brick workouts, which is uh, defined as Mark Sisson can, uh, made up that term back in the early 80s. Did you know that? Yep, it's a true story. So the brick workout is doing a bike ride and then immediately finishing your bike ride and putting on your running shoes and running because that simulates the challenge that you're going to face in the triathlon event. And a lot of people never simulate that challenge because they do their bike ride on Saturday morning and then they do their long run on Sunday morning and it's nothing like doing the bike, ditching the bike and starting to run right away. So conditioning yourself and training to do that is a good way to prepare for the event. How's that sound? Is that enough? Thanks, Brian. Kareem asks, I'm an outrigger paddler training for the legendary, you didn't say legendary, I did, 38-mile Molokai Channel to Oahu paddling race. Go onto Google and check these guys out. This is an amazing event. 38 miles across the open ocean in these beautiful outrigger canoes. So Kareem's in the game. Congratulations for even entering, man. I want to take advantage of online customized blood testing. Um, 
after listening to your old podcast with Brock Armstrong. What test would you advise me to take as an endurance athlete? So now, as you've heard from the shows with Dr. Uh, Tommy Wood and Chris Kelly from nourishbalancethrive.com, I think you should go there first and just go to their homepage, see what they're all about, watch the opening video, take the free uh, uh, test that they've uh, spent a lot of time on and built a nice algorithm to see if you're at risk for certain uh, dysfunctionals and maybe get some recommended testing going on. But their testing program is pretty comprehensive. Um, there's some other options that you can do if you do just off, uh, what do you call it, uh, one-off blood tests from places like Direct Labs. Um, they have uh, panels that they can run. But what I really find is if you're super committed to this endurance stuff and you're trying to get the most out of your body, um, the, the, um, the shotgun approach is really frustrating. And I've been doing the shotgun approach for uh, 30 years now, where someone recommends this particular test from this particular doctor. I go take it. It costs 147 bucks, whatever. I turn out to be fine. I'm not getting to the bottom of it. And then six weeks later, I'm on to another suggestion and another voodoo healer or whatever it is. And it's really nice to see that Nourish, Balance, Thrive has sort of taken the guesswork out of this and become a guide to help you through this uh, testing protocol that's so important to endurance athletes. Man, I should have them sponsor the podcast too, huh? Anyway, um, take a look at what they have because they will put you through a huge battery of tests. I have done it myself. I'm in the middle of it. Uh, with uh, all kinds of uh, packages being sent in the mail to do your stool testing, urine testing at five different times a day, and then going over to the blood lab, your nearby blood lab, and pulling 13 vials of blood in my case, and then looking at all this data and realizing that no matter who you are, even the, even in the, the elite athlete in Nourish Balance Thrive has done a bunch of elite athletes, everyone has room for improvement and perhaps targeted su- supplementation or dietary modification to write some of these conditions that are identified through the comprehensive testing. So uh, that's my answer for sure. Um, Talking about general health and disease risk factor protection, um, Dr. Kate Shanahan advocates that the uh, triglycerides to HDL ratio is the number one best indicator of uh, heart disease risk or alleviating that risk with a good ratio. And you want to get your triglycerides and your HDL at one-to-one ideally. Uh, most people are nowhere near that if they're eating standard American high-insulin-producing diet. People want are talking about getting triglycerides under 150 as an urgent goal to uh, eliminate that disease risk or minimize it. And then your HDL at least over 40, but that's a big gap. So the good primal eaters will report in that oftentimes uh, HDL can even get higher than your triglyceride level. And that is a really good sign that your uh, good things are happening in your blood. Also, for the endurance athlete, uh, getting those sex hormone panels would be important, testosterone in particular, uh, because that's so easily suppressed by a high-stress training program where you're stimulating excessive cortisol production. So if you can find a sex hormone panel as a a basic one, and then what Nourish, Balance, Thrive has seen from over 1,000 athletes that they put through, including elites, is that a lot of people are struggling with some sort of dysfunction in the gut. And you've heard so much about gut health being the burgeoning health topic, especially in the alternative or the ancestral health world. And so they're finding the best tests out there from various different providers that you'd have a hard time tracking down yourself and testing your gut microbiome function 
and seeing if there's any imperfections there that can be affecting your physical performance. And the cool thing about this, and I've been doing medical testing my whole adult life as an athlete and looking under every rock to make sure I was good, a lot of stuff is beyond the basic uh, medical testing protocol. So I will go in to uh, get my you know health checkup or my annual physical, and they'll say I'm just fine, but I'm struggling as an athlete and complaining of overtraining patterns, fatigue, whatever. Um, you got to go deeper than that because your basic medical testing is just scratching the surface for someone who's interested in peak performance rather than just the basics, okay? So that's my pitch for doing some alternative testing, especially when you're putting out all this time and energy into endurance sports. And here's Rick. Sorry, man. It took a while to answer some of these old questions down the list. I apologize. Um, This one came on my birthday, February 4th. So after the long wait, welcome to the summer. And Rick is saying, I've been eating primal diet, training aerobically for a while now. As a marathon runner, I'm used to fueling my races with gels. Should I try a more primal approach or are gels okay on race day? I'm running my fifth marathon in a couple of weeks. Well, I hope you did well back in February. I'm a 52-year-old man. Welcome to the club, baby. And I'm trying to go Boston qualifying time of 3.30. So on race day, anything goes, right? You want to get to the finish line feeling strong. Look at ZachBitter.com, and he writes an account of everything he ingested during his uh, 100-mile championship run on the track. And it was pretty entertaining to see that he had... Uh, a, a swig of Mountain Dew, a handful of jelly beans or potato chips or uh, high performance uh, product like the Super Starch. I, I'm not making, I'm not uh, accurate. I'm just kind of making this up, but he, he threw down a whole bunch of stuff, but it wasn't that many total calories because he was so fat adapted. So the profound insight from Zach Bitter's experience and quantifying it on his blog was that um, he was only ingesting an average of, a, I believe it was 126 calories an hour for this 12-hour event where he's been known in the laboratory study, faster study, that he's burning up seven, eight, nine hundred calories an hour. So the rest of it was coming from stored energy. So that's the cool thing. As you get fat adapted with your diet and sensible primal endurance style training patterns, you don't need as many gels as you would if you were a pure sugar burner. But when you're packing the gels or you have energy available on course, it's a good idea to monitor that you know concentration level, your level of mental function and cognition. And when you feel a little dip, of course, you're going to hit that sugar, of course. And it's probably going to make you feel great right away. Um, so mostly what we're talking about uh, in terms of dietary habits for endurance athletes, we're talking about outside the training parameters. That said, it's also pretty cool to realize that um, some folks are doing amazing performances without needing supplemental glucose calories at all. Um, My friend Paul Grossenstein from uh, PrimalCon reported that he completed a 140.6 mile Ironman event. I forget which one. Maybe it was Wisconsin or something a few years ago. And his fuel source was a steak and a glass of red wine the night before the event. And then he fueled an Ironman, 13 hours of athletic competition uh, on water and liquid amino acids. So it's possible for the body to perform without any excess uh, external ingested calories, but you have to be highly fat adapted, highly keto adapted before you mess around with that. In the meanwhile, pack your gel. And also referencing Ted McDonald's great interview that was on the Primal Endurance Mastery course. Uh, He's our yoga master as part of the course too. He puts you through some great yoga sequences 
for beginners, especially for endurance athletes to help improve flexibility, reduce injury. But we also interviewed him because he did this incredible uh, hike up the Inca Trail in a single day. And he reported how he was packing the sugary products because when you're out in Peru and you run out of energy, you can't go to 7-Eleven, you're in trouble. So, of course, he needed to pack the food. But just knowing psychologically that he had a gel at his disposal should he need it kept him in a comfortable psychological state of mind where he was able to complete the hike. I think it was an 11-hour hike. It's 20 miles up many thousands of feet of climbing up to Machu Picchu. And I believe he completed the hike uh, with just very minimal. He took like a bite of one energy bar and left the gel in his packet, didn't even need it because he was so fat and keto adapted. But the idea of packing the energy with you so that you know that it's there, but only reaching for it if you need it, that's a great strategy to do, especially in training, where it's kind of fun to push your limits and see how far you can go without consuming any external ingested calories. I don't know if I'd do that in a race. I'm sure that I wouldn't. In fact, I'd probably preempt that and just throw down a gel just for the heck of it, knowing that I reach mile 20 and I'm probably going to need it sometime in the next six miles if I'm referencing a marathon. So you can fool around with the edges and training and enhance your metabolic fitness. Same with after workouts. When you finish, you wait a little bit, wait out 30 minutes, 60 minutes before you eat, and that'll turbocharge fat burning if you're fat and keto adapted. If you're a sugar burner and you don't eat right away after workout, you're going to feel like crap the next day. And all that talk, that old talk about the window of opportunity for glycogen replenishment is valid that you have to eat right away after your workout. So we're talking about two different paradigms here. And that's what's pretty exciting about uh, the burgeoning keto scene and the idea of the ketogenic endurance athlete. So that seems like a great wrap up for this uh, question and answer show. I really appreciate you guys asking these thoughtful questions and keep it coming. Go to uh, primalendurance.fit and use the tool there, uh, the, um, uh, the contact tool to put your question into a form or also give feedback or requests about the podcast because we're trying to provide the content that's most useful to you. And definitely enroll in the course because as you're going through the videos and the instructional materials that bring the book Primal Endurance to life, maybe some more cool questions will come up and we'll have more fun on the podcast. For now, Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Brad Kearns, Primal Endurance Podcast. What you say? I shall enjoy the fruits of my labor if I get free today. But now, I holler what you do. What you say? I shall enjoy the fruits of my labor if I get free today. Hi, this is Brad Kearns to tell you about Primal Endurance Online Multimedia Educational Mastery Course. And what we have done for the past year is basically bring the book Primal Endurance to life with a series of videos and other multimedia educational material, audio, ebooks, all accessed at this online portal with everything you need to succeed in endurance training. 
And if you're trying to do this stuff, if you're enjoying these compelling challenges and trying not to get sick, injured, burnt out, fried, this is going to help you approach your endurance goals in a healthy, balanced manner and promote your health rather than compromise it. Get away from carbohydrate dependency and progress toward fat adaptation. It's over 120 videos, many with the experts and also many others with the step-by-step instruction of what's in the book. So if you're too busy to read or you'd like to have a more comprehensive learning experience, check out Primal Endurance online. You'll have everything you need there at primalendurance.fit.